This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about Russia's reliance on private armies, investigating the convicted phone hacker assembling complaints against the tabloids, and discovering the lewdness and lyricism of ancient Roman graffiti. First up. In the magazine, we look at the Wagner Group's failed coup and its implications for Putin's regime. The Spectator's Russia correspondent, Owen Matthews, examines why the Kremlin permits the existence of private armies. And he joins us now, along with Jim Townsend, former Deputy Secretary of Defence for Europe and NATO under the Obama administration. Owen, you write your piece in The Spectator this week about Russia's private militaries, Now, I think if anyone listening hadn't heard of the Wagner Group before last weekend, they sure as hell have heard of them now. But as you point out in your piece, Wagner is actually just one of many other private militaries that are in Russia. Could you start by telling our listeners a little bit more about the other ones out there? Yes, the remarkable fact is that there are dozens of private military companies, um, some of them founded by Gazprom, the oil and gas giant, otherwise others formed by private individuals. Strangely enough, it's rather like sort of 18th century England, you know, wealthy people would gather soldiers and lend them to the state. And uh, of those the, probably the most dangerous apart from Wagner itself is the private military force that's associated with Ramzan Kadyrov, the president of Chechnya. But um, Gazprom itself has at least five of these military companies. Uh, Some of them were formed um, well before the war, and they began their existence as private security companies for various oil companies, protecting their installations around the world, uh, particularly in Syria. Uh, But most of them were founded after the beginning of the war. And the idea is that Russia is so desperate for men that it's willing to essentially outsource recruitment to private companies who then turn a profit on the money that is paid to the soldiers. They're not under the control of Gazprom. They are technically fighting with the Russian army and they're paid by the Russian state. But nonetheless, the bottom line is that it's clearly, as we've seen from Wagner's revolt, an extremely dangerous and unstable situation where you have a large number of private militaries whose loyalties can clearly be divided. Jim, could you tell us a little bit about how you see the relationship between these private military groups and the Kremlin and indeed the main Russian army? Well, it's a very troubled one. I think, as Owen has pointed out, this is not exactly how the West goes about its military in terms of a professional military, a command and control, uh, where uh, just starting in the basic units, uh, the initiative is given to junior officers. uh, And there is a a planning aspect to uh, Western armies where as uh, units go into into battle, they have a better idea of, of what the goal is and the support that they're going to get, there's a loyalty there. It's much more of a cohesive whole. 
in terms of Western units. UK, US lead the, lead the way in terms of that type of fight. But uh, what Owen just laid out and what we have been seeing, when you have a, a penny packet group of forces with divided loyalties, certainly, uh, with training that is spotty, with equipping that is irregular and not interoperable, I cannot imagine what their uh, communications situation is between the units. Having a military formed around these individual armies, while it might have made sense uh, uh, maybe in the 17th century, today, given the interrelated element of combat among uh, modern forces, that just doesn't work. And we're seeing that right now. And I think we're going to see, particularly in the months to come, fissures that will be widened because of what's happened with Wagner uh, and these other militaries, uh, these other units who are going to say, well, uh, what are we doing here? Uh, and, uh, and so this is, this is a um, multi-volume story. We've just seen chapter 10. Chapter 11 has just started, and we'll have to see where this goes. Well, Owen, if these fissions do indeed widen, as Jim just said, is there anything the Kremlin can do to try and bring some of these private militaries to heal, you know, starve them of cash or, or equipment? Uh, I mean, what, what could the Kremlin do to try and uh, tame some of the forces that it's, um, it's unleashed over the last 10 years or so? Well, the problem is that um, the Kremlin just tried that. I mean, a week before the Prigozhin, the Wagner mutiny, and in fact, the proximate cause of the Wagner mutiny was precisely because the Kremlin attempted to rein in Wagner. And Sergei Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, issued a an order that all private military company personnel needed to sign a contract with the Russian army. Kadyrov's uh, men agreed to do that. Prigozhin's did not. So clearly the Kremlin already recognized well before the mutiny that this is a problem. Their attempt to solve that problem caused the mutiny. So um, already, in a sense, this is, you know, the, the, um, you know, the Pandora's box is already open. The, the, there's another aspect to this, and that is, as well as the private military companies that are essentially sort of contracted by the state, there's also uh, various groups of volunteer militia, which are associated with the leadership of Crimea, the leadership of uh, Donbass. And as Jim says, um, it's not really clear how these inter- these guys are integrated into the main military structure. And frankly, the lesson of Russian history a century ago is that in 1917, and in fact, Putin referred to this, the specter of 1917 in his address to the nation on Saturday morning as the Wagner mutiny was unfolding. The lesson of 1917 is if you have various forces that are actually, you know, rivals and are not clearly under the control of the, of, of, of the, of the center, when the center, if and when the center fails, then you have a disastrous civil war situation on your hands. Jim, in in another piece in the magazine, we have Mark Galliotti writing about what may come next. But he also says that despite the events of the weekend, there is actually no sense really that Putin is under immediate threat. What what do you make of that? What's Putin's position right now? Well, no one really knows. Uh, You could could speculate that uh, Putin is under no immediate threat. They're not units of Wagner surrounding the Kremlin. Uh, he's not being stalked in the hallways of the of his personal quarters there in the Kremlin. You know, there's I guess there's not that kind of immediate threat, but he is quite paranoid 
uh, that there is a threat immediately, uh, an immediate one or not, but that uh, he is in a much more vulnerable, vulnerable position today than he was a week ago. I mean, there's blood in the water, if you will, in Moscow right now. And I think he knows above anyone else what that can mean. So while, the, uh, while there's not maybe an immediacy here, uh, the nature of the threat that he may feel under is, is, a, is, is quite unknown, whether, whether it's Prigozhin uh, reforming his military in Belarus, whether it's an oligarch or a member of the security services, or, or disloyalty now within the Russian military forces, which have to be uh, under some suspicion by, by Putin uh, based on their reaction or non-reaction to the rebellion as it was beginning. So or, as well as the intelligence forces. We talked about security services, but particularly the intelligence service who, uh, for, for some reason, didn't pick up on this, which I really doubt. I picked up on it. I, you know, uh, and I'm no, uh, you know, no uh, intelligence experts tracking uh, Russia. So it's a, uh, it's something where Putin must, um, must uh, be looking over his shoulder all the time. So it's not the immediacy that's the problem. It's it's when in the future this is going to happen and how it's going to happen and who's going to be the one to do it. That's what's going through Putin's mind right now. Owen, what do what do you what do you make of that? Do you think it's true that Putin is not in the in the immediate uh short term at least uh, is not under threat, but you did say earlier that that the events of this of the weekend just passed have been a very destabilizing force. So surely he will be, um, uh, if not under threat, at least at least worried, won't he? Well, let, let, let's 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 be very clear about what this rebellion was not. It was not an attempt by Prigozhin to take over the state. So in that sense, it's rather significantly different to revolts in the past. For instance, the, there was a general called Lavor Karnilov who fatefully uh, rebelled against the provisional government in 1917 and caused the, you know, its destabilization and fall. That, 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 that was not the, the, the Wagner mutiny. Wagner had been placed in the position where they had to rebel or die. By Prigozhin's own account, they came under rocket fire from the regular Russian military. Uh, Sergei Shogu, the defense minister, clearly wanted them dead. And uh, they were sort of basically revolting in order to ensure their own survival and Prigozhin's own personal survival. The destabilizing part is uh, that, in fact, it's been shown clearly by the events of Saturday that the security services and the army did not resist Prigozhin. He took over the headquarters of Southern Military Command, which is in Rostov-on-Don, which is, let's not forget, the nerve center of the Ukraine war. Um, He took it over with barely a shot fired. And the the fact that he was not resisted, although Putin has been handing out medals for supposedly resisting this mutiny and preventing Russia from civil war, or saving Russia from civil war, as Putin put it, as he handed out the medals. The reality is that the, the, the disturbing part is that it's not clear that Putin, that Putin can rely on his own troops and security services. And even more worrying was the reaction of people in Rostov-on-Don, which was to cheer Wagner as they withdrew. They, you know, hundreds of, you know, thousands of people on the streets shouting Wagner, Wagner. And when the police showed up to supervise that withdrawal, they shouted Pazor, Pazor, shame, shame, and pelted them with debris. So, I mean, clearly, this is an extraordinary a very dangerous situation where you have an armed rebel general that just rocks up to a major city of over a million people, 
takes it over without a shot. And then the locals turn out to cheer him. These are locals that, by the way, have had shown no interest whatsoever in protesting Putin. But again, let's remember what it was not. It was not an anti-war revolt, nor were the people cheering Wagner anti-war. They, they were cheering Wagner because Wagner, in their minds, are the only forces that have given the Ukrainians a, a good kicking. They're war heroes to the citizens of Rostov. It was not an anti-war protest. And that's sort of really the takeaway from this, is that there, um, however badly the war may be going for Russia, Russia is still you know, by no means in a desperate revolutionary situation. The economy is fine. Sanctions have not really dented it. According to the World Bank, Russia is actually going to do better. The Russian economy is going to do better than the British economy this year. And uh, there's really no sign uh, of the three things that you that, that are necessary for a Russian revolution. That is a profound economic crisis, a thoroughly discredited state, and a plausible alternative. None of those things pertain right now. However, what we see is you know, that Putin's prestige has been uh, rocked and that uh, a better organized re revolt with a more coherent political program and a po more popular leader actually could very easily succeed. Thank you, Owen and Jim. Next, the Spectator's Special Projects editor, Ben Lazarus, writes this week about the claims made in the recent Mirror Group phone hacking trial and the man orchestrating many of the accusations, Graham Johnson. Ben joins us now alongside Neil Wallace, commentator and former deputy editor of the News of the World. Ben, before we start talking about Graham Johnson, can you start by telling us a little bit about the story you start your piece with, which is how Prince Harry became the star witness in the recent Mirror Group trial? So it's no great secret that Prince Harry doesn't like the newspapers um, and hasn't done for a long time. Now, the story runs that uh, a few years ago, around 2019, Harry is in the south of France at Elton John and David Furnish's house. He was introduced to David Sherborne, the sort of celebrity barrister. Harry called this a, quote, chance meeting. And he was so impressed by Sherborne, according to what he wrote, and spare anyway, that he basically agreed to join the claimants and get involved with legal action against the free newspaper groups. And Neil, what did you make of the evidence Prince Harry gave in his testimony? I mean, do you think he is helping his cause against the tabloid media with his particular claims? Well, I think it's a multi-level thing. Are you talking about facts, for instance? Facts seem to be completely devoid of, in his evidence. He had to repeatedly accept during his evidence that the story he was complaining about had either previously been in other newspapers or it came from statements from the palace or that it was a perfectly ordinary public event. And this happened time after time after time. So if you were in a court of criminal law, I have no doubts whatsoever that this case would have been thrown out already. But you're not in a court of criminal law. You're in a court of civil law and the rules are completely different. And one of the things that I found interesting looking at the coverage, I have no doubts whatsoever that in a court of criminal law, where it has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, or so that it has to be very much weighted in terms of facts. The difference is in a court of civil law, as this is, 
It's basically about balance of probability. And that brings the judge's opinion into it enormously. And what we have seen throughout this is that the that the judges throughout the last decade of these kind of cases, the judges have weighed enormously towards the civil claimants and against the newspapers. And the newspapers have accordingly stopped. In Ben's excellent piece, he makes the point that it's a very brave thing for a newspaper to take a court, a case like this to trial, because you're also not just facing the, an issue of law, whatever, whether it's civil or criminal, but also the court of public opinion. And people didn't like phone hacking. So you're on to a bit of a hiding to nothing. And it's a very difficult case to actually defeat a complaint. So going back to Prince Harry, which is what you asked me, I think that he doesn't care about that financial issue, the financial issues. He doesn't really care if he wins anything more than a very slight victory, which is why you know, this issue of the of the one incident will matter. And he's already got the headlines he wanted. I came under a complete pylon on Twitter the other day for questioning Harry evidence. I got absolutely battered for about a week. That was purely because the court of public opinion, there's a section of it that really likes him. So it's difficult to say there are different areas where it may or may not win or lose for him. Ben, your piece centres around this character called Graham Johnson, who you say has been helping assemble complaints against the tabloids. Can you tell us a bit about his background and the role that he has been playing? So Johnson is infamous for his involvement in a, in a story that nearly ran at the, at the News of the World that, in which he staged a story about discovering the Beast of Bodmin, a sort of Cornish equivalent of the Loch Ness Monster, uh, if you will. And he basically staged photos from Dartmouth Zoo of a creature, and, they, and he and the photographer scratched claw marks on a tree. And it was only when he was back in the office and the newspaper was considering putting out a very expensive TV commercial to plug this great scoop of his that he was essentially rumbled. He left the newspaper shortly afterwards, and it's one of these sort of infamous tales around Fleet Street that just reporters know of, even younger reporters today. Now, he ended up being the investigations editor at the Sunday Mirror and eventually left that paper. And then once all the phone hacking scandals began and was that whole sort of episode was playing out, he actually handed himself in to the police and said that he had hacked phones. And he had this sort of conversion to what I think he wrote was essentially truth-telling. He had read some philosophy. Somewhere I read it was Noam Chomsky. Another place I read that it was Alan de Botton. But essentially he decided that he needed to tell the truth, and so he came clean. And then from there he essentially became the main kind of guy against the newspapers. And... Since that time, around 2014, he's been gathering evidence to take on the newspapers. And for many years, newsgroup newspapers, which is Rupert Murdoch, which is The Sun and the now defunct News of the World, and Mirror Group newspapers, which is the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror and the Sunday People, 
have essentially just always paid up and never really taken anything to trial. But in more recent years, Johnson began gathering evidence of alleged misbehaviour at the mail group or associated newspapers. And that's when perhaps things maybe started to unravel slightly. And after he started looking at associated newspapers and gathering evidence against that newspaper group, there was more focus was put onto how Johnson has been operating in gathering evidence. Because until now, essentially, there hasn't needed to be much forensic going over of what's ended up being used against newsgroup newspapers or the Mirror Group, essentially because they've, they've always paid out. And, and can you give us an example? Your piece has various de- sort of different examples, but of the kind of evidence that he has gathered that perhaps is a little bit shaky. Well, I mean, f- first and foremost, the, m- the most significant one is his work with a PI called Gavin Burroughs. Now, he was, Burroughs was hired by Johnson for £5,000 a month to help him compile evidence, and that's finding other PIs who are willing to talk and essentially doing PI work, you know, build, building documents and, and memos for Johnson that would, would help him take on, on, on his um, claims. Now, Burroughs supposedly wrote this 21-page document that sort of bursts with all these omissions of great illegal activity or what, what they call unlawful information gathering. And this was sort of taken to various individuals, including Baroness Lawrence. And uh, it was seen as a sign that, you know, suddenly the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday were as guilty as the news of the world and were, were knee-deep in this stuff. And it led to seven claimants against associated newspapers. Now, Burroughs then turned up during the preliminary hearing in April and said that the document was not his. It was essentially a forgery. The signature on the document wasn't his. And there is a discrepancy between Burroughs' signature on this 21-page document and his official signature, which, which he's uh, shared with me on. Now, the two men have had a falling out and lots of different claims either side. But the fact is that what Burroughs is alleged to have done in that document made its way to several significant individuals, most notably Baroness Lawrence, but others include Elton John and, and Prince Harry and so forth. And the, the majority of the claimants against the male said that they, they joined together in that litigation on the basis of Gavin Burroughs' evidence, which Burroughs tells me is a forgery, a fabrication, and that he did not write. Neil, is there an irony here, perhaps, that some of the techniques used to gather evidence against the tabloids, which Ben has laid out so thoroughly in his piece and just now on the podcast, that some of these techniques are themselves quite tabloidish? I mean, as a sort of stereotype of tabloid behaviour. Well, that's what struck me as I was reading Ben's piece. The way he was describing it is he's talking about the techniques that uh, allegedly ran free in the wildest days of the tabloids. You know, you're going back to the 70s here, 70s and early 80s here. So a lot of the techniques that Graham Johnson appears to use are almost out, out of a textbook of low tabloid techniques that might have been around, as it were, when he first started in Fleet Street. And he seems to, uh, again, going on what is in the article, uh, 
and from particularly, I, I listen bemused to some some of the stuff r- related to in court about what was alleged to have happened. It's almost caricature of tabloid Fleet Street. You know, it it's it's what legend had it used to happen, but whether it actually ever did, I don't know. Because typically of of phone hacking in itself, what you do find when you were uh, end up in the middle of of it, as I was when I got arrested and, you know, I was on bail for four years and ended up at the old Bailey on trial for a month before I was acquitted by 12 good people and true. The vast majority of phone hacking failed or was utterly insubstantial or immaterial. And among the stuff, for instance, that got presented to me at my trial so resonated me when I'm listening to the Prince Harry and the other cases, but particularly Prince Harry, claiming little snippets of articles in newspapers came out of phone hacking. You know, and, and, and one of the one of the things, for instance, that one of the cases that were put to me was the result of phone hacking was the leader column. There was a piece in a leader column that had an opinion about someone that they said that is the opinion of the editor that they said must have come out of phone hacking. And and there's so much legend and nonsense in truth in this, but an awful lot of of what I, the techniques used. I w- w- there was a great quote about if if you put it to somebody, I put some, an idea to somebody, and they choose to believe it, then it's true. Essentially, was part of what he's saying, and that was that's his justification, and. One of the things that really struck me listening to Ben and to reading the piece was these are very large amounts of money. Where did Johnson get the amount of money? £5,000 a month for one individual is a lot of money. Elsewhere in your piece, I think, Ben, it says something about someone was offered £2,500 a month or something like that. Cumulatively, these grow very quickly into very large sums of money. Who bankrolled that? Because I tell you now, Graham Johnson didn't bankroll that. So it's a really interesting question. How does he get access to that? But I think the important thing is, whatever the root of the money, it hasn't come out. Who is bankrolling this and why? Because it is not Graham Johnson. This is a large pool of money that has been made available to make this happen. Now, some may say that's perfectly legitimate. You know, the phone hacking was wrong. It was very wrong. And, you know, arguably all of that uh, people who were wrong deserve to be looked after and compensated. But if all the truth needs to come out, then all of the truth needs to come out. And we need to know who and why people are doing that as well because I think it's sinister. Thank you, Ben and Neil. And finally, what did the Romans ever do for graffiti? Quite a lot, it turns out. Harry Mount compares ancient and modern graffiti in a piece for this week's magazine, and he joins us now alongside street artist Sarah Yates, a.k.a. Phonographic. Harry, what inspired you to write about ancient graffiti? Because... These two blithering idiots, I would call them, called Ivan and Haley. Well, perhaps not so much Haley, but a man called Ivan went to the Colosseum and put his name and his girlfriend's name and the date, scrawled it onto the walls of the Colosseum. 
I think, the greatest of all Roman buildings. And he was videoed by a, a good guy who said what an idiot he was. But it made me think, actually, if he was going to do graffiti, make it more sophisticated or funnier or ruder than just saying Ivan and Haley 23, because the Romans were masters at graffiti. But is it just the, the, um, the substance of the graffiti that you're taking issue with, or is it the fact that it's modern? So if you, Harry Mounts, had been walking around in, in, in ancient Pompeii or Rome, you probably would have had a problem with graffiti, uh, graffiti artists or, or, or graffitiers just chipping away yeah, back yeah, in the day, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, first of all, it's the banal nature of, uh, of what he said, Ivan and Heli 23. But also, I do think you shouldn't graffiti now this great monument. But you're completely right. There's a sort of contradiction is that graffiti preserved in 79 AD when Pompeii was engulfed by the uh, volcano is gripping and worthwhile. Sarah, you are a graffiti artist. Can, can you start by telling listeners how you became a graffiti artist and perhaps a little bit about where you choose to paint? Uh, sure. Well, um, I became a graffiti artist uh, like near for, to where I lived when I was 19 years old. Um, it was kind of like a sports like a basketball arena that had already got some graffiti scrawled there and some different pictures there and stuff. So I kind of just got my things together and, and did my own first painting there, I suppose. So I, somewhere very local to where I lived and had grown up is where I made my first artwork. And and are people broadly positive towards your art or, or do you get people saying you shouldn't you shouldn't do that? Uh, in general, no. I mean, um, I suppose the type of imagery I personally use, I've never had anybody oppose it. But obviously, a lot, a lot of people do. But me, in general, my particular style of stuff, I've never really had anyone disagree with what I've painted or where I've done it. So well, it's been quite positive for for me, thankfully. <laughs> Well, Harry, uh, Sarah obviously works uh, prim- primarily in imagery rather than text. When it comes to ancient world, you give mostly uh, in, in your piece examples of, of text graffiti. Uh, but w- were there examples as well of, of Roman imagery when it comes to graffiti? Uh, yes, there, there, there was. There was there's, a, there's a famous example in Rome. I don't know how rude I can be on a spectator as podcast. As rude as you but, like, Harry. Uh, but there's a, there's a famous uh, uh, example there of a man who's had his nose replaced by a penis, uh, which they're very, very keen on. They do lots of pictures of animals, but what they really like doing is pictures of penises. Um, <laughs> and then in the catacombs in Rome, where the Christians were buried, there are endless crosses there and also pictures of fishes because the Greek for fish was ichthus, which is an acronym for Jesus Christus, Theus, Eus, Soter, Jesus Christ, um, a son of God. So, so they loved doing all sorts of images, but they particularly liked words. Hmm. And Sarah, can you tell us a bit about the modern graffiti world? Is there a big community of artists and do people... Do people kind of share share ideas and look out for each other's work? Um, yeah, I think so. I think like uh, in general, anybody who's you know ma- making artwork on the streets, whether it's with letters or uh, with street art, paste up stickers and mural. I think everybody has a. It's kind of like a very close community, even though that it's always expanding and growing. 
uh, I would say most of all, most artists like support each other now, like, because obviously it's a movement of its own. And I think the only sometimes scenarios that you get are the scenarios where the people that are trying to make a statement more in the more um, like not like, you know, in the more vandalizing aspect of graffiti where they might tag buildings and stuff like this. Um, it, they're probably the ones that are kind of a little bit more opposing the street art side of things and the mural style stuff, because, you know, they, they have their own views about, about how graffiti should be and should be done. So yeah, they've got their own opinions. So I guess there's a little bit of a division in some parts of it with some people, but it's not with everybody. But if there was one, that's where it is. It's where the tagging and the bombing is. And there's a bit of a division there with tagging bombing sometimes. So in regards to that division, Sarah, what is there some ideas about which buildings are off limits for either tagging or, or, or graffiti artistry? I mean, so for example, I mean, something like the Colosseum, just since that's what Harry started his piece with, you know, would do you think that graffiti art? Do you think a lot of graffiti artists would, um, you know, would would regard kind of ancient buildings or or very beautiful buildings or as being not fair game when it comes to graffiti? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, like from from my point of view, uh, from what I've learned from people. I mean, I've, since I've started graffiti, I, I've I, I mean, I started from the you know the beginning where I did meet my friends were graffiti artists who did do more of the vandalizing side of things with a bit of the mural aspect as well. So from what I learned that the way of things is that there is places to do it and there's places you shouldn't do it. And for obviously personal obvious choices as well, it won't be somewhere anybody would usually make graffiti nowadays with us knowledge of the fact that you know we need to preserve these buildings and stuff it to me it doesn't make any sense so I personally wouldn't do it and I'm sure most artists probably wouldn't just from the fact like you say that these ancient buildings have survived events and stuff like volcanoes uh, like the one in Pompeii um, so it wouldn't make any sense to come with our new modern arts and make us own graffiti on these places as such you know but depends on the on the location again because obviously there is a lot of uh, street art events that are happening in like abandoned very old Italian towns and uh and all sorts of places around the world where villages have been abandoned and now they're they're having special like street art events there where they invite artists from all around the world to make artwork on the bu- on the buildings there like murals so but that's organized properly by the people that are from that town for example so on that aspect that's been properly organized and there couldn't be paintings on all buildings but in general like in the incident that you said it, it probably wouldn't be make any sense to make artwork and scrawlings and graffiti on such old stuff yeah now you obviously have a fondness for ancient graffiti is yeah. there any modern graffiti that you you appreciate uh I don't know if it counts as graffiti. Actually, I do think Banksy is extremely good. I think it's a very high level of art. And actually, I find it very interesting. I once went to Greece about 10 years ago where the streets were covered in political graffiti. And I thought how impressive that was because it wasn't just the sort of sometimes rude stuff we get here. And, and I said this to a Greek friend, how impressive it was. And he said, no, that's a very bad sign if you've got people putting up graffiti about politicians. It shows your politics 
isn't going well. But on the whole, I prefer ancient graffiti to the modern type. Just one more point that I was thinking of when I was reading your piece. Do you think that perhaps the reason why there is less sort of um, impressive graffiti on the walls is perhaps because people now put stuff online that they might have once scrawled on a wall? Uh, it might well be that. And also when we talk about Roman graffiti, because they didn't have a printing process, actually a lot of things that you call graffiti are things like um, adverts for bread or launderers, they're actually right on their wall. We make great bread here. So it's called graffiti, but actually that would be, just like Sarah was saying, that's completely fine, I think, to do right on your own wall. So there's a mixture between adverts and the obscene graffiti, which I enjoy even more. (laughs) Well, Harry and Sarah, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And that's everything this week. As ever, do pick up the magazine if you'd like to read everything we've talked about. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we do hope you'll join us again next week. <laughs>